This episode of Slay the Stigma is brought to you by the Richardson Women's Club Charitable Foundation. You can learn more about them at rwctx.org. My name is Deborah Dobbs. I'm the executive director of The Counseling Place, a nonprofit victim advocacy and mental health agency in Richardson, Texas. I see the stigma around mental health as a dragon. It's a dragon that society keeps well fed. That dragon, though, it's hurting people, even killing good people, so we need to get rid of it. Now, you don't do that by addressing it or tackling it. If you want to kill a dragon, you slay it. So welcome to Slay the Stigma. With each episode, we'll dispel myths, we'll challenge perceptions, and offer solutions about mental health. Each episode delivers a powerful strike against the stigma. And we don't intend to stop until that dragon is slain. One thing I I love about this Slay the Stigma podcast is that we, you know, we'll cover a topic on an episode and then, you know, then these other ideas pop up and then we learn things about uh, other folks who are interested in, you know, they volunteer to come on. And so today that's kind of what happened. This um, was unplanned. Um, Our our episodes are not scripted. But today is it's one of those episodes where we you know we learn something and somebody volunteers to come on and today that happens to be Carson McCain, our producer. So thank you for volunteering to come on and talk about something that we're both passionate about, and that is the stigma that adheres to a sexual assault. Yes. Yeah. So um, like Debbie said, my name is Carson. Um, I work for the counseling place um, as a uh, victim advocate and also a, a counselor. I'm waiting for my license <laughs> to come in. Yes. <laughs> so uh, this sort of came about, um, Debbie, you had mentioned in one of our sort of brainstorming notes sessions or in or maybe in a spreadsheet, um, your interest in the Netflix series and book that the series was based on. And that series is Unbelievable, which is about a case of sexual assault and a woman, a young woman who was not believed uh, when she came forward, despite quite a bit of evidence. Yes. And then a detective or a couple of detectives, a couple of female detectives who several years later ended up catching the perpetrator in a completely different part of the country Mm -hmm. in a completely unrelated case that they were trying and then they were able to determine that um, she had been telling the truth yes 
Yeah, and even though she, you know, they they performed a rape kit, right? There were physical signs that she had been detained. Had the detectives in her case looked into it, they would have been able to see that there was evidence. Mm-hmm. There was a seed of doubt that was planted um, because they didn't think she reacted in the way that victims ought to react. Right. And her memories weren't uh, chronological and all of the details weren't provided. Exactly. Exactly. You know, one of the quotes that I heard them say was, um, and, and one of the actual people involved in the situation, they said she told the story of her rape as if she was ordering a sandwich. And that to me was like, oh, that person doesn't know what it's like to be in this situation. That person yeah. doesn't know what it's like to tell the story of your trauma. Right. So that brought me to coming to you, Debbie, and saying, um, I think it might be useful. I would like to talk about this. This is something that I care deeply about as a survivor and victim myself, about telling my story to bring light on what assault can look like and how it doesn't look always the way that you think, and then bring to light you know, my response, which was not maybe what you'd call a standard response. Right. And and then, you know, talk a little bit about how we can help people, um, how we can listen to people when they disclose to us. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so um, I'll dive in to my story. Okay. Uh, and uh, thank you. Because it, it's, uh, it, it takes, you know, bravery to come forward and talk about it. And we don't look at other crimes that way. We, you know, if you were robbed... There, there's no shame in saying that. Yeah. You know, but with sexual assault or, or rape, and there's people that don't even want to say the word rape. It's really frustrating to see how any, how much suffering there is, and and needless suffering, not, you know, outside of the the crime and horrific it is, but um, the shame that goes with it. Yeah. And and how you don't talk about it to other people. Yeah. You know, that and that support that you might seek from other people, you don't because of the shame. And so then it just exacerbates the the suffering. So I appreciate you coming on and 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 sharing your story. Yeah, I'm 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 grateful, too, because it was um, it was actually a memoir I read where someone shared their story that made me sort of reckon with the fact that I was assaulted. Mm -hmm. Because because and I want to be clear, I, I I wasn't raped. Um, I was touched in some particular way and fortunately, but unfortunately, I don't remember it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. I know that I, um, so I had been, um, with a friend of mine at the time, um, someone I considered a friend hanging out with them, um, drinking. I had, not enough to get drunk, but at the time I was on a medication that I didn't understand um, how it interacted with alcohol. So I had two beers and the entire night is a blackout. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So I, I remember not driving home because I couldn't. And I remember being like, I guess I'm going to stay on your couch. Right. And then I don't remember what happened. I remember waking up the next day and leaving. Um, 
uh, and and waking up in bed next to this person. Oh dear. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I left and I texted them later and said like, I don't know what happened. Can you like, what happened? I don't remember. And they were like, you don't remember you had two beers. And then them saying, well, I guess that means I basically assaulted you. <laughs> Cause they didn't realize that it, it wasn't consensual. <laughs> okay. I guess. Okay. <laughs> or didn't, or didn't know or what, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but the way I understood, the way I found out what happened is he told me, I think I basically assaulted you. Good grief. Because you don't remember. Yeah. Um, and at the time I was like, I don't remember what happened. I was dating my now husband at the time. So uh, okay. I don't think I would have consented to anything. Um, you know, but I was obviously blackout drunk or blackout mm -hmm. in, you know, in some way. You were incapacitated. I was very incapacitated. That's the way to say it. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know how you wouldn't have noticed that um, or known that. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't get a test done because I didn't think it, it wasn't. He, he told me we didn't have sex. He told me. He didn't tell me, you know, what we did, but he was like, we didn't have sex, but we did other stuff. And I didn't know how to ask because I didn't want to know. Right. And, and that brought me to a very strange point where I said to myself, I don't remember what happened. And so I don't want it to have happened. Uh-huh. And I just decided I was going to pretend it did not happen. Um, and so it was actually like a couple months before I cut off all contact with this person. Okay. Um, I like treated them like a friend for a couple more months and like got coffee with them. I tried to feel normal. Exactly. Tried to feel normal. Um, I wanted it not to have happened. Um, I was in therapy at the time for some anxiety and did not tell my therapist because I was like, this didn't happen. If, if I don't remember, it didn't happen. And so it's not something I need to work on. It's not something I even need to consider. And uh, about that time, I um, stopped eating. <laughs> and my, my therapist later called it um, coming out sideways. My, my feelings, my coping was coming out sideways. So unlike some people who experience anorexia, what I was doing was denying all of my feelings <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. completely. So I was denying what happened to me. I was denying any feelings associated with that. And so physically, I started denying things that my body was telling me it needed, like food. Goodness. So I, I started denying my hunger cue to the point where I just wasn't hungry anymore. I couldn't feel it. So rather than like a controlling thing of like, I, I feel shame around eating or I feel like bad, it was, I was trying to cut myself off so strictly from what I was feeling. So just it, like extraordinary uh, uh, attempt to numb oneself? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so um, not only emotionally, but then physiologically. 
Yeah, literally mm-hmm. numbing. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm not, I won't, I won't feel anything uncomfortable and hunger is uncomfortable. And so I won't feel it. So this all happened in July and in November I had lost probably 20 pounds and was goodness the like just a scary thin. Um, I, I've seen pictures like since and, and I didn't recognize it, but it was just like my wrists, you could see them in way like my bones mm-hmm. were, were protruding in ways that like I didn't look healthy. Mm-hmm. And I went to my psychiatrist um, for to get a checkup on my anxiety medication and she weighed me and I looked at the scale and went, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's when I told my therapist because I went, oh, there's something something's happening. How tall are you? I am 5'4". Okay, um, so 20 pounds when you're 5'4". I hit under 100. Um, Good grief. Okay. Just... And that was, um, you know, 125 was like my range of like, that's where I was like, good, healthy, you know, and that was in college. So like, mm-hmm. I was also, you know, my metabolism was fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I, I hit a hundred. And grief. so you told your therapist, you told your therapist. I told my therapist and she is the most incredible human being on the planet. Um, and I've, I've seen her now for, it's been, uh, seven years. Oh I've my. Seen her. Um, and she said, okay, this happened. So you talked about a memoir yeah, I read, and, and she's not my favorite person in the world, but I read um, Lena Dunham's memoir, <laughs> uh-huh. and she talks about a moment when she was assaulted. And again, it's not, it's not rape. Um, but a sexual assault, it's a sexual assault. It's a sexual assault, yes. Yeah, and it's, it's, in, it's invasive, and it's uh, demeaning, and, you know, um, okay, when when did you read the memoir compared to when you talked to your therapist? I talked to my therapist um, first and even still, it was so hard for me to call it assault or call myself a survivor. I want, I was like this thing that happened. Um, and, and even now, like telling you about it, it's very difficult for yep. me to be like, to not try to justify his actions. Right. Or not, um, frame it as a way of like, I set myself up for this. Yep. It's so hard. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember the, the first thing my therapist told me, and it's this incredible story metaphor that, that really stuck with me. And she said, um, she was talking about, there's this Starbucks that's right by my college. You can, uh, drive up to it. Um, you can park in one of their like 10 minute parking spots and run in and get your coffee and come right out. And my therapist said, I do that every morning. She's like, I go there, I go in, I grab it. And she said, and it is so hard for me in winter to not want to leave my car running. Uh-huh. And she said, even now with a, like, there's a Starbucks app you can order before and it'll be ready and you can just run in and pick it up and come back out. Like you don't even have to wait for like two minutes. And she was like, I, she says, it's so hard for me to not leave my car running. Cause it's easy. That's an easy thing to do. 
it's, you know, it would be heated. And she was like, I don't do that, but I could. But if I did, I wouldn't be prosecuted if somebody stole my car. If someone stole my car, that would be a crime. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if I left my door unlocked. It doesn't matter if I left my car running with my keys in it. Mm -hmm. Someone committed a crime yeah, and took this. And that's when it clicked in my head. It's like, it doesn't matter what I did. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter that I didn't understand my medication and didn't understand how two beers would interact with it. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were talking about the book and, and, um, you know, the movie, the unbelievable, there's, mm-hmm. they're talking to, um, and I, I hope I'm saying her name right, but her, her name's Archimbolt. And this, this woman, you know, was an officer way back when she was like one of very few women in, in law enforcement. And, um, but she kind of was leading the charge in um, improving law enforcement response to um, victims of sexual assault. And one thing, you know, she discussed was how research um, shows that the more intimate the crime, the more people focus on the victim's behavior. And there's mm-hmm. no crime more intimate than sexual violence. And and so, because with no other crime would you, right, you'd still say, um, my car was stolen. And they, yeah, I left it running. And that, that was a mistake on my car part, but it doesn't mean my car wasn't stolen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and it doesn't mean that you are less like, that's still believable just because mm-hmm. you made a mistake. They'll say, Oh, you made a mistake. I understand that. But obviously your car is still stolen and we're still going to run aground finding mm-hmm. this car and this perpetrator. Mm-hmm. No matter my mistake. Right. And that really, um, that combined with that summer, I think it was, I read Lena Dunham's memoir. So it was about a year out and July continues to be really hard for me. Um, it continues to be my least favorite month of the year. <laughs> I, and I read this memoir and she called herself a survivor. And I was like, oh, she is acknowledging this about herself in public. I can, I can take on this label that's useful to me Mm -hmm. you know I I don't have to pretend this didn't happen right and that was so healing to me when I not only was able to tell the story to other people but also say to myself this happened and I'm and I'm probably going to have difficult Julys the rest of my life yeah and that's okay. So today, you know, when you wanted to come on the episode, was it just taking a step to share your story? Or are there other things you wanted to weave in as well? Absolutely. There's so much. There's so much. Um, beyond sharing my story, something I've realized, you know, my background uh, before counseling and before the counseling place uh, is podcasting and theater and art. And so, you know, I'm, I'm five years out from owning my story. And so I've told it before and I've recognized the power, Mm -hmm. the power of bringing something to light. Um, And so that's a piece I want to talk a bit about, which is just 
because there's so much shame wrapped up in this particular right. crime for victims um, and survivors, shame festers in darkness. And I see it all the time in people who have depression, in people who, you know, make any sort of mistake if they don't bring it to light by stating it, by bringing it to someone. It doesn't have right. to be public. But bringing it to light, I think, is a weapon against shame. You know, it's interesting we're having this conversation because you are the newest addition to the counseling place. And, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'll share something with you. I don't know if this will go in the episode or not. But you're you're talking about, you know, um, how shame festers in darkness and the power of actually sharing your story. And, you know, when I got into victim advocacy, I thought, well, I just fell into it. Uh, my background was, you know, criminology, sociology, I had a master's degree, and I was teaching at Richland College for a little while, but there was no way I was going to get a full-time position there. And my mother was a volunteer at the counseling place. Back then, it was known as Neighborhood Youth Services. And she was on call 24-7, you know, well, we, the agency was on call 24-7, and she uh, she would respond to crisis situations, and she's like, I think he would like this. And so I, uh, then I became a victim advocate, and I started doing it full-time. And one of the f- first cases I had with a sexual assault was a story that was so similar to mine that I had not told anybody and uh, that it, w- it was hard. That was the first time that I, I struggled to advocate for someone because it hit close to home. And I had always treated my incident like, well, I walked into the trap. You know, mm-hmm. I was the one that walked into it. So like it didn't really happen. Like, well, I left my car running, so it got stolen. So it's not really stolen. It's my fault as much as a, a, the criminal who decided to steal my car. Mm-hmm. But um, my first experience at uh, UT in Austin was a visiting when I was a senior I wasn't quite 18 and I went down with a couple friends and we went to uh, we were staying with someone's cousin at uh, a dorm and we were invited to his fraternities you know burgers and beer and we are seniors in high school we're trying to act like we belong there we're older and one of the first mistakes we made was showing up to burgers and beer dressed kind of dressy casual and burgers and beer is a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops thing so Mm. we stood out and I you know my upbringing included a lot of travel I I had seen the world I had been turned loose in you know Paris my dad was a pilot so so we traveled a lot and no one had treated me badly. Men had always been, you know, kind to me, good to me. I had not, um, you know, there had been some guys that pushed it a little bit in high school, uh, but I, I didn't date any of them. I just kept a distance from them. People that, you know, made me uncomfortable and I could pick up on it and I didn't want to be around them. So I'm at this party and I'm an introvert and it's just packed and I'm way out of my element, which didn't happen easily to me. So I sat out on the porch of this frat house, which I didn't really like the whole fraternity thing. And 
so I was sitting out there and this uh, guy comes out and, you know, he's handsome, he's athletic, he's charming. And uh, I won't go into all the details, but he was very good at um, identifying that I was uneasy and um, he would, uh, it was, he was quite skilled, which um, gives me no doubt that he'd done this before and did it afterwards. And it was just this instant rapport. You know, what kind of car do you drive? Well, I, back then I drove a 280ZX. And he said, oh, I do too. I have one of those. That's so cool. Uh, which down the road, he's like, it's a total lie. He just made it up. And it's called instant rapport. It's rapport building. And you act like you've got this instant rapport. You have this rapport with someone who's a total stranger. And it's a way of, you know, they take down their guard, which I did. So um, long story short, he was having, a, he and his roommate were having an after hours party. Like an after the, I don't know, whatever he called it, I didn't know. I wasn't part of that culture. So they were having a party at his apartment and invited a bunch of people and invited me and um, my friend. So we go over there in uh, my father's car. My friend was driving the car. And we're overdressed. So he's like, hey, he threw out, you know, it's like, here's a, there's sweatshirts and sweatpants uh, on my bed in there and go ahead and go change. And, you know, he didn't go in the room. He shut the door. And so I felt, you know, it's like, okay, because I felt ridiculous because most of the sorority girls were looking at us like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, so I am in there changing clothes. And then my friend who was supposed to be my buddy that night yells, um, we didn't have cell phones. So she said, I've got to run back. I'm running back to the door to make a phone call to call my boyfriend. And they'll be right back, I promise. And she never came back. Mm-hmm. And there was no party. Uh, and he had no car. So um, I was sexually assaulted. But I had such a hard time with it saying that. And like you said, it's hard to even say that. And even now it's, it's, I mean, this was a very long time ago, but it's like, well, I was drinking. I wasn't drunk, but I, I had enough to drink where I wasn't going to drive. And so the, it was about, I don't know, middle of the night. And I went and got, I, I slipped out to, into the living room. Cause I didn't know where I was. I wasn't paying attention. I was in Austin, downtown somewhere, I guess. I, near campus, I think. And um, I found a phone book and I called the um, dorm and they weren't going to put me through. And they said, it has to be an emergency to reach this person. So I said, it's an emergency. Uh, They put me through and my friend, uh, there was another friend there who chose not to go to this party. And she um, found the key to my dad's car. And I don't know we, we, neither one of us can figure out how this happened, but she found me. I, I mean, I, I went downstairs and I'm on like the street and she showed up within five minutes, just drove right by. And, and I remember coming out of the shadows literally and getting in the car and she just said, you know, are you okay? And I said, I'll be okay. And, you know, she knew what happened. We didn't have to talk about it. I went back to the dorm and one of the frat brothers who, who was there, his father was actually a judge, Um, he asked me, did he hurt you? Did he do anything to you? And I just said, no. Nope. And I never told him. I wasn't going to report it. I was like, what am I going to do? Go down there? Yeah, were you, you were drinking? Yep. 
You went to his apartment? Yep. Did you let him kiss you? Yeah, I let him kiss me. And then I said, uh, I have a boyfriend. I use that excuse. I have a, because I did. Yeah. I have a boyfriend. I can't do, I don't want to do this. Oh, yeah, you do. No, I really don't. Um, and, you know, I just, uh, there was no way I was going to report it. Yeah. And then. I mean, same. <laughs> yeah. You know, because, again, the, your behavior is is judged. Yes. And I was like, how am I going to, I know enough about true crime to know if I don't remember, who's going to believe me? Right. You right. know, and oh, if there's yeah. not, if there's not physical, like, how do I, how did, how does anybody know I was violated? Right. And I wasn't, you know, you know I didn't have any bruises. The dude, yeah, yes. the dude was big. He was like football player size. And I, and I thought it was just one of those things where it's like, I'm going to get, I can get beat up and raped or I can just get raped. I guess, you know, I remember feeling frozen. I remember crying and, um, and I remember protesting but, uh, and I remember being flipped over and I remember pain. And, um, and so it wasn't until uh, my first marriage, I, I'm divorced, divorced from him, but I could see, I started having, uh, those flash memories that, you know, they talk about, I had, uh, my therapist, I finally went to see a therapist. Um, but it was 10 years later. And she, it was like body memories where I would, I would feel like I was there again. Yes. And no, no logic behind what would trigger it. And then, um, <laughs> I think that it, it came to, it really came to a head when, this is before I, I got help, is I was working for a resurfacing company when I was in graduate school. And so they redo countertops and, and bathtubs. And the boss wanted me to look into new uniforms for the, the guys that would go do the paint. And so I'm calling around getting pricing for uniforms. And um, the sales guy who answers the phone has the name. Uh, it, it's the name of the guy who uh, raped me. And so I'm thinking, and, it, and it's an, uh, not a real common name. And so I was thinking, this, is this a coincidence? So I started asking them questions were you down in Austin in 1988? Well, yeah. Uh, he was very charming, you know. And I said, yeah. And then I think you left after that because I knew who this guy was. And I said, I think you went to tech after that, didn't you? And he said, yeah. How do you know that? And he thinks I'm like flirting with him. But yeah, I was like, yeah. this is the guy. And I remember going to my boss. I'm like, I don't care what their prices are. I, I told my boss, like, this guy, he raped me. And I don't want to do business wow. with this company. And my boss believed me. He was like, okay. And that's when I just, it, it was just kind of a unraveling. And so uh, I got help. And, but I have, no, I don't talk about it. You know, this is the first time I've talked about it. <laughs> it's, it is so, it's so hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the things that, um, again, we're, we're sort of talking about unbelievable sort of weaving it into here. One of the things that was so healing, cause I, uh, since we spoke, I read the book, I watched the series, I listened to the, this American life episode about it. Um, Ooh. which is great. If you haven't listened, they have a, um, they speak to Marie, like she's, she's there. Oh, wow. Um, 
and and to um, the two women who said who were her foster mothers who said they didn't believe her and them like and you hear them deal with the fallout of not having believed her anyway it's fascinating yeah that was horrible horrifying horrifying but um the thing that was so healing to me and beautiful about the book and the series was at no point was I as the audience set up to doubt her at every like from the top of the book and from the top of the series you know it happened mm-hmm. and you can watch you know you can watch com- compassionately to or not compassionately as people don't believe her um right but rather than making this a who done it or did it it's happen, not a mystery it's not a mystery yeah no at no point is it a mystery whether it really happened or not and that's one way they could have framed the story and they didn't and that to me is so it's so small you could you could not notice it um but being intentional about telling the story this way is healing um, and, and made a difference for me because sometimes I can't engage with these stories cause it's, it hurts too much. <laughs> and I avoided this Netflix series for a while. Cause I, you know, I was like, I don't know if I can handle this right now. Um, yeah. And, and a, a thing that led to more doubt about Marie's story in unbelievable was she took it back. She said, I, I lied. I don't. And it's easy for me to say, well, I wouldn't do that, but I spent six months denying what happened to me. I spent six months saying, I don't want to deal with this. So it didn't happen. I don't remember it. It didn't happen. So of course I would have, of course, you know, I didn't, I didn't call the police. I didn't want to be inconvenienced and I didn't think I'd be believed or I didn't think it mattered enough or I didn't think it was a crime enough. To sort of, um, it's so much, um, to sort of jump from, you know, our work as victim advocates, and, and I'm new, I'm, I'm fairly new, I haven't done a ton, um, but uh, has been really, ex- you know, my, my supervisor, Ashley, she sometimes asks, like, are you overwhelmed? Is there too much? Is there any cases that are like weighing on you? Um, and the reason I think victim advocacy is so important and I'm so grateful I fell into it, um, is cause it feels like I'm taking power back. Um, and, uh, as a victim advocate and also as a, as a therapist, listening to people disclose or talk about this, um, I now have concrete ways to help. And so I thought I'd share um, a couple of things that I've I've learned just about like when people disclose to you, what are some helpful things to say and what are some not so helpful things to say. So the, the first thing I uh, have heard and would advise people to say is if you have a friend, if you have anyone disclosed to you, a useful thing to say is I am here for you. What do you need from me? Because then that person is empowered 
to say what they need or say nothing I just wanted to tell you. For me, I have a I have a hard time not like jumping into action. You know, what are we going to do? How do I help you? Here are 16 people to call. Not useful, <laughs> you know, not so useful. Instead, if I say, I'm here for you. I am so sorry that happened. What do you need from me? They have the opportunity to say, I don't know what to do next. Can you help me find out? In which case I get to jump into action. <laughs> or uh, I can. they can say nothing. I just needed to tell someone. And I can say, well, let's sit. I'm here. And, and it's critical, the, what we learn in therapy um, in our training is that the first disclosure, the response is critical. How people respond to the first time they say this happened to me will form in their brain what they expect from everyone else. So by saying, I am here, I, you know, you can say I believe you, sometimes that's not useful, um, but you can. But saying, I am here for you, what do you need, gives them power to say what they need, empowers them to directly tell you yes or no, thank you for trusting me, is a useful thing to say. Less useful are the things they're going to get from police. (laughs) You know, police are going to ask them what happened. All of the hard, horrible questions, what were they wearing, what were they doing, what happened before, what happened after, why didn't you tell sooner? They're going to have to retract that so many times on a good day, you know, in, with, a, with a detective who is great, they will have to tell more than once. They're going to have a hard journey ahead. And if you are a person who they disclosed to, I think the best thing that you can do is listen and say, I am here for you. And then there are some resources you can have in your back pocket, you know, if they say, I don't know where to start, crisis hotlines are so useful. You can call, you can say, where's the nearest place I can get a sane, you know, sane trained nurses to perform a kit. Our agency provides counseling to victims under a grant, you know, and my college, my college had free counseling services. The number of people who took advantage of that is like 5%. One of the one of the most healing things my therapist ever said to me was, I've dealt with this before. Because I was like, oh, I'm not insane. <laughs> I'm not so crazy that someone can't help me. You know, like, unfortunately, the path of assault victims and sexual assault victims is so well trodden. There are people who have walked through it. Um, and, and one of the things that I've learned is through, through some advocacy training is just like when you have a victim in crisis, you know, the first, if they disclose to the police the, for the first time, if that's the first instance they have, one of the most helpful things you can do for them is say, these are the next three things that are going to happen. The next three things. And here are the next three things to expect. Um, Because when you feel like you're on an island and you don't know what to do, it's so scary. Um, And we've talked around the self-blame that comes up with victims. Um, 
what I have seen and what I've experienced is that self-blame can also be a form of me wanting to control the situation. Because if it was if it was my fault, I can prevent it from happening again. If if I track oh, this happened because I had two beers and because I was in the wrong place and because I trusted somebody that I shouldn't have trusted. And if I never do those three things again, this will never happen to me again. I, because I, I've, I've had, even in my short time as a graduate student with clients, I've had clients who it's happened more than once. And to say to them, the first time wasn't your fault. And if it, or, and the second time wasn't your fault. If it happened to you again, it still would not be your fault. It is still a crime. It doesn't matter if you left your car running again. It does not matter. And I wish we could control it. And that, that sometimes that's really healing to heal here too. I wish that didn't happen. If I could, I would go back and erase that. I would stop it. I would, you know, if I could, I would take that pain away from you. Oh my gosh. And that's the, that is the uh, like other side of this is you will go through this. And again, I'm going to quote my therapist again, because she's the best. I love her. She told me one time that this will be something that I'll carry forever. And that's hard. And I hate it. And sometimes I get mad and I hate it. But she said, I won't always actively carry it. Sometimes, some days, and sometimes it's just days, some months, some weeks, I'll put it on the shelf and it'll live up on that shelf and I won't think about it. And some days I will choose to put it on that shelf and not think about it. And sometimes it'll, I'll carry it and it'll be really heavy and have compassion for myself on those days. But it won't always live as a like rock. It gets lighter, and the more I talk about it, it gets lighter. And, and the more it's in the light, it's easier to carry and spends more days on the shelf the further I get away from it. Thank you for listening to Slay the Stigma. By taking what you've learned today, implementing it, and sharing it, you too are helping us hack away at this dragon. If you like what you're hearing and you want to support our work slaying the stigma, you can donate to The Counseling Place at our website, counselingplace.org, or you can give by texting CP Slays to 41444. I'm Deborah Dobbs, and thanks for joining us. <laughs>